Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 127. This week, we talk with Charles Torrey about chaos engineering. Google Fiber is amazing, so they stopped installing it. Choosing between beer and saving lives. And we discuss the Apple and Microsoft events. This episode of the MS Dev Show is brought to you by Infragistics, providing tools and solutions to accelerate design, development, insights, and collaboration for any organization. This week, we have Charles Torrey, developer and chaos engineer in the DX team at Microsoft, focusing on quality engineering, and he's co-founder of Channel 9. How's it going? Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I, I had a, uh, I was talking to my intern a while ago, and uh, one of his uh, one of his coworkers had you as a mentor. Yeah, and uh, I was talking to him at one point, and he's just like, "Yeah, what this guy on our team? He's he's got his mentor is one of the guys that created Channel Nine, and he was just like, he was just like, just dumbfounded. It was just awesome. Right <laughs> so very cool. I love Channel Nine, and we're obviously on Channel Nine. We are very interesting to be in this this role. Yeah, absolutely. So, Carl, let's talk about this big event because we got to get the word out. We have to fill this place. Yes. So we will be having an event at the MVP Summit, or at least the Saturday before on November 5th from 8 to 10 p.m. at the Boardwalk at the Microsoft Commons. So we're going to be right on the Microsoft campus. Should be central for just about everybody. And everybody is invited. Literally, I think, Jason, you what, sent out an email the other day to like 600 Microsoft employees. Yep. Basically all of DX that is, that is local here. So if anybody's listening to this in DX, that is not local, you're obviously invited to, but I didn't want to send it out to like thousands of people. Um, and obviously pretty much anybody who listens to the show is obviously welcome and, uh, bring your families and, and have them consume lots of food and drinks. Awesome. And, and we're going to have a band there. So, uh, what, yep. do you remember the name of them? It is, is it Hush? Man, I didn't know there was going to be a pop quiz, <laughs> but let's put it this way. They're the highest rated uh, band that performs at the commons. So, um, so it's going to be a good time. Uh, it's actually um, one of the, one of the uh, people in the band is James Whitaker's son. And uh, so that'll be a good time. And then obviously we mentioned this before, but James Whitaker will be there. Donna Sarkar. Um, I just invited uh, John Shuchuk. He's going to try to make it. Charles is going to try to make it. Yep. Um, uh, Jeremy yeah. Foster said he was going to be there. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. We have that, we have that in, in, we have that recorded saying that he's going to be there. So I, I, did, I, he's probably just trying to be nice though, but we'll, we'll see. Hopefully he'll show up as well. It's we'll, going to be a we'll great hold it time against him. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. So what do, who do we have for the Infragistics ultimate winner of the week? So the person I chose this week, this is his second time winning. And in the past, we've shied away from that. But that's only because at that point, the license that they would have won would have conflicted with the one that they already had. Mm. He won this one over a year ago. So I'm going to consider him up for uh, eligibility again. And it's Dan Clark. He tweeted us. I actually, a lot of people tweeted us on this, but he was the first, but, uh, he was the first one to tweet about this. He said, amazing dev tip from the MS Dev Show. In Chrome, create multiple profiles to store different logins for the same service. No more incognito mode. Mm-hmm. And and people really loved that tip that you had, Jason. Uh, yep. We've got, I think, like eight different people responded to us about that. Mm-hmm. 
So if you want to get mentioned on the show like Dan, send us an email to feedback at msdevshow.com, comment on Facebook, YouTube, or Stitcher. We really like those five-star iTunes reviews. Yeah, we got it. The next show, we got to go grab one of those iTunes reviews. Okay, let's jump into the news. We got lots of good stuff. We, we definitely want to talk like, talk about the Microsoft event and the Apple event. But first, we have a couple smaller stories that we're going to cover really quick just because they're very timely. So the first one is hacked cameras, DVRs powered today's massive internet outage. And we did talk about the outage on the last episode. Because um, it was we, affecting us. Yep, yeah, because it was affecting us. We couldn't go to Twitter or Hacker News. By the way, um, I, I don't know if this is a tip or not because the second that I fixed it, like things, I think things got fixed. But um, we were actually complaining on the show about uh, DNS not caching. So apparently, um, I want to say it's uh, OpenDNS does do caching. So what I did, um, they're not the fastest DNS provider for me. There's tools out there where you can actually test to see who the fastest DNS provider would be for you specifically. Um, so I actually kept Google as my primary DNS and my secondary DNS. I put OpenDNS in there because you can have as many providers as you want. So I'm not 100% sure if it will fail over, but the idea is that it will try Google first just because they're faster. Uh, if it can't resolve the IP, it'll actually go to the secondary. I'm not sure if that's how it works or not. Um, I have a suspicion that if the first one gives an answer of nothing, that it'll actually accept that answer. So maybe somebody can write in and, and confirm or deny that. But uh, my secondary DNS provider is set to open DNS now. And they actually, if you were using them as a DNS provider, that outage would not have affected you because they were basically, if there was no response for a site, they would return the last known IP, um, even if it was above the the time to live. So um, yeah, I'm hoping the next time that this happens that I'm prepared for it. Worst case, what I'll do is I'll just make OpenDNS my, my primary temporarily. Yeah. So a little bit uh, about this attack, it, mm -hmm. uh, was involved some software called Mirai and mm -hmm. that was the same, uh, 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 type of attack that brought down, uh, the Krebs site a month earlier. So they had sustained this massive DDoS and what had happened since is this, uh, uh, this Mirai software was essentially let into the uh, the community in, for black hat purposes. So whoever had authored it is essentially open sourced it. Mm -hmm. And uh, what this really was targeting was DVRs and IP cameras that were uh, made mostly by Zhang Mai Technologies. Uh, but essentially, these were anytime that you hadn't changed the user, the admin username and password, is where they could just go in and take over these uh, IoT devices. So yeah. that just kind of proves out a few things. Like if you have some sort of IoT device, uh, change the password on it as soon as you get it. I just got a, a new router. And one of the things that it actually did is it said the, the password, the username and password is admin admin. And as soon as you log in, it forces you to create a new username and password. That's good. So you can't actually access the settings without changing it. Okay. And turn off universal plug and play, Carl. Go do that. Because um, that allows these I, uh, these IoT devices go and open up. They basically turn on natting yep. and that will nat traffic to them, which is which is kind of frustrating. So I find this whole thing super frustrating because you you, you actually did it just like everybody else does. They say, oh, I, these were IoT devices. IoT is evil. And that's oh, it's so frustrating. Because, I, I, it's not necessarily IoT, but these were, I, these were specifically yeah, no, I'm not, IoT I'm not, device. Yeah. No, I'm not frustrated with you. What I'm frustrated yeah. with is like we we have this thing we call IoT and really like you could insert computer right so let, let's just in, whenever you hear thing. the word iot think of think of compute these are computers okay just just for the purpose of what we're talking about like i know why people call things iot and i do it as well but let's call these computers computers are insecure computers can be hacked like that's the way it is 
So should we stop using computers? No, of course not, because the value vastly outweighs the uh, the cost of the of the insecurity or whatever's going on. And we we know how to build relatively secure systems now. Like that's that's just a principle that we've built up over time. And when it comes to IoT, there's no difference. It just happens to be that there's a company that is making insecure computers that we also happen to call IoT devices. Um, and and we can't let these bad companies, or maybe not even bad, maybe that's maybe that's a, but these these companies that are writing insecure software, we can't let that taint the entire IoT name for all devices. I think that's that's the worst thing that could happen on this is because I think it's already happening. Like IoT not secure, not going to happen, and it's like oh, <laughs> so that that's what's frustrating for me. Do you have any comments, Charles? I do. I think it's also fair. You know, this is sort of goes into the what we're going to talk about later around chaos engineering but mm-hmm. there needs to be a little bit of accountability of this on the side of the DNS provider mm-hmm. um, they're clearly not a resilient system and what I mean by that is you're going to get DDoS attacks you're going to get flooded mm-hmm. how do you solve that problem what sort of redundancy have you built into Good your point. system the fact yeah. of the matter is Facebook doesn't go down when it gets DDoS attacked Facebook has mm-hmm. its own DNS service and architecture. It's very redundant. It's very resilient. So I think there's blame. If we're going to blame, there's blame to pass around all over the place. And DNS is fundamentally insecure itself. But there's the notion of redundancy that needs, they need to get better. DIN needs mm-hmm. to get better, mm-hmm. right? Everybody Absolutely. needs to get better, including the DNS provider. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it is it is crazy that that, that happened. I mean, it. I, I'm guessing they'll deal with it next time. <laughs> yes, they will. And I mean, it's hard. It's a hard problem yeah. because these were real devices. They, it wasn't like they could quickly right. tell there was a problem. Right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's um, it, it, it's funny watching the comments, too, because people were like, oh, well, these these sites should have had, um, you know, multiple DNS providers. And like, I get that. I get why you think you should have that. But I'm paying a DNS provider to offer a service and that service is to provide DNS services. That's it. Like period. <laughs> like not, I don't say like I'm paying them to provide me DNS services unless there's a DDoS attack. So like it's their totally their problem. If I want to, if I want to use one provider, I should be able to do that. And it's the, the, the DNS provider needs to do the right thing. So these sites that went down, like I, yeah, sure. I get it. Like, um, they, it is pretty inexpensive for them to, to use multiple providers. So they probably should do that. It wouldn't, it's not a bad idea. Yep. Um, but you know, whenever we're talking about a, a service like this too, I mean, what if they were inter- interfacing with Facebook and then Facebook did go down? Mm. Oh, they should invent another Facebook and then interface with that. No, that doesn't make any sense. Like <laughs> the, the company providing the service needs to make, to add all the redundancy and, and actually like if it make it doubly redundant and, and add it on both ends. Well, anyway, uh, let's see, we're ready to move on. Uh, yep. Google Fiber has been such an amazing roaring success that we've all stopped. Uh, we stopped all work, and I also quit. <laughs> That's so, awesome. so that Explain was somebody's. So that was somebody's tweet summarizing this article, and th- yeah. it's essentially a very accurate but yet snarky um, yeah. summarization. Um, essentially, you know, uh, Google Fiber is where they brought gigabit internet into these different communities, mm-hmm. and in fact, when they first did it, these communities were doing outrageous things to entice Google to bring fiber to their cities. I think uh, one of them even changed their name for a day to Google or something like that. And yeah, I think that was Kansas. They, they did that or was it maybe, yeah, maybe yeah, Kansas city. city. 
Uh, yeah. But either way, I mean, it had a, a really big impact. Wherever uh, Google said that they were even thinking about doing it, other companies would just swoop in, raise the internet speeds, lower the prices, and it had like a really good effect for competition. This is yeah. you know one of the ways that I thought Google was actually being very innovative. Mm-hmm. And there was this blog post the other day that said that um, this has been so successful that except for the areas where we already are, if we were in talks with you at a city, we're going to back out. And by the way, I'm stepping down from CEO and quitting. Like Google was like our only hope here. (laughs) It's just, it's just, it's frustrating because Fios, you know, kind of did the same thing. They're just like, we're not adding any more infrastructure and Fios is just, it's freaking amazing. Like I, I just, um, you know, I don't even care if like if their customer service is bad, like I just, it's such a good service that, that I, I, I tell everybody like every, I've converted so many people in my neighborhood. I'm like, you're using Comcast. I'm like, Oh, just switch over immediately. And I've, I've, I've converted a lot of people cause fiber, I just, I really, I, not to, not to go on a big tangent, but I just think it would fundamentally change the way that, um, our country operates. Mm-hmm. If we, if we had another, if we had a project that was like the interstate highway system, but for fiber infrastructure inside the, the United States, um, I know it's expensive though. So just for, for, I don't know if I'd mentioned the cost on the show, but I had some landscapers out. It was actually the homeowners association. They, they hired a landscaping place to remove a stump and they cut my fiber line. Um, for, for frontier to come out and fix that, it was $1,200. <laughs> Luckily the landscaping company is, uh, is, is fixing or is paying it. But, um, so, I mean, that is tough because coax, like I could have gone out there and I could have just fixed it myself. So fiber is expensive, but I think it, I think it, the, the benefits outweigh that over a, a long enough time horizon. Were you going to say something, Charles? Oh no. I mean, I have fiber myself, CenturyLink. Yeah. yeah we're lucky thing- out here in Seattle. Yeah. Well, I will well, you say get, that, so CenturyLink is gigabit. So yeah, but here's the problem with gigabit that the average consumer may not really understand. Yep. Um, even though they're pumping, you know, pretty much that much through the through the light through the wire, yeah, the fiber as light. Um, chances are you're not going to have a device that's going to be capable, definitely over wireless, because right. you'll you'll be like, wait a minute, I'm paying for a gigabit, I'm only getting four hundred. Mm-hmm. And that's because of the hardware you're using. It's because of your router setup. You need to have yep. a gigabit switch. So you kind of need to be an IT kind of person to really get the max out of a gigabit. But I but I would say that that's sort of a self-solving problem because if you don't know how to set that up, you also won't know what you're missing. <laughs> Agreed. So because because the the thing is it it sort of solves itself if you have if you have multiple users. Well, the problem is most people are going to use it on wireless. But if you had multiple wired users, mm-hmm. then that sort of solves that whole problem. I, I thought what you were going to bring up is the fact that um, while you have a gigabit connection, that you're always um, it's always you know the weakest link in the chain, right? So if you're if you're talking you know if you're um, talking to a site and they they have a hundred meg connection and they have a hundred people downloading files right now, you're going to get one meg, right? Even though you have a thousand connection. So it's really like I could send you files really quick and you could send them to me, but sure. I have a hundred meg at my house and yeah, I wish I had a thousand, but honestly, like that person who had has four hundred in your example, like yeah. realistically, it's it's equal to a thousand. Yeah. No, it's been really nice. It's it's yeah. It's just a little 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 spendy. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> I'm actually, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm kind of okay with that for like the, the greater good, like out of it, out of everything that I'm going to spend money on. I mean, we, we spend so much money on, on different things. Um, you know, it's worth it. Like a couple hundred bucks obviously is, 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 you know, way too pricey, but mm-hmm. you know, 150 for like gigabit, if I could get that now, like yeah. that, I, I think I would probably do that even though one day out of the month is really all I could take advantage of it. Although it'd be like uploads and things like that. So sure. And, and like remoting into your dev machine yeah. to work. Yeah. I get three millisecond pings between this computer and uh-huh. my home computer. Three Great. milliseconds. It's just, awesome. it's insane. Cause it's the, just the, they're peered. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's just an amazing. And I can copy files at that speed, but yeah, having that speed and having gigabit too, is probably just like another order of magnitude. Right. So uh, it fundamentally changes how you do things like cloud backup and stuff. I mean, just, being able to like upload something and just have it go blink and it's done, you yeah. know, Oh, that was 10 gigs and it uploaded in a minute. It just changes the way that you can do things. And I think it's, I think it's just amazing. Yeah. But I think another thing that uh, is really useful once we get that more uh, throughout the U S is for getting 4k content everywhere. I think that'll yeah. really help push, you know, the next uh, leap in technology and television as well. Yeah. What is the actual requirement for 4K? I don't think it's as high as what people think. It's not as high as what people think, but it's definitely more than what most people have access to right now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. uh, Last news story before we get to these other events. Uh, Self-driving truck makes its first trip, 120 mile beer run. Yeah. So this is a semi truck that is autonomously driven on the highways during good weather, uh, can be uh, autonomous. And they even have video of nobody driving a truck because the uh, the truck driver is back in the sleeping berth laying down. That's what surprised me. Like the Tesla video, the guy is like hovering on the steering wheel and this guy is just like, eh, whatever. I'm going to go take a nap. I'm like, what? <laughs> no, thank you. That's not how I want to die. But um, I guess, I guess it's allowed on some highway that they were on. So they were. Yeah. So there's a, a fairly, a fairly straightforward stretch. That's 120 miles long. And yeah. in good weather, they're allowed to drive it aut- autonomously. Yeah, exactly. That's the bad weather. Anyway, so you, t- you told me about this story before the show and I was laughing and I didn't tell you why. <laughs> I was just thinking like this puts a whole new spin on the trolley problem because <laughs> now now it's like – it, it, the, the thing is about to, you know, I don't know, hit somebody and it has to choose between like taking human life and delivering beer. <laughs> it's not just like, you know, how do I, how do I equate life? But now it's got to, it's got to think it has a purpose in life. Right. Um, and if we wanted to get a little bit more serious, it could be carrying medical supplies. If, mm. if that works better for you. Some people, okay. the beer works better, Jason. Yeah, I know. I know. Probably our listeners. Um, okay. So we want to talk about the, the Microsoft event because there was lots of Lots of really good news. Um, I think they could have compressed the whole thing. I think I think they could have gotten this all done in an hour. The first part was a little boring, but if you if you really just distill down the technology, I think it's really cool stuff. So the next update of Windows coming out early next year is the Creators update, um, and they showed some really cool stuff. They showed 3D scanning from a phone, so they they scanned in uh, a sandcastle and they were able to turn that into a model. And then they brought it into something called Paint 3D, which I think, you know, some people like the name, some people don't. Uh, but they brought it in there. They were able to edit it. And then they were able to actually publish it to different locations, including like the HoloLens and other uh, um, VR, AR devices. Mm-hmm. So they were able to actually sit there and like look at the sandcastle in, in real life and preserve that forever, which I think is is really cool if you're able to do that. Um, and then they also showed like uh, shopping for... Um, you know, decorations and they actually showed a stool They they had, they had an edge browser and they actually took the stool like out of the web page and like placed it, you know, in the real world, which yeah, is, I, I, 
I'd like to know really a little cool. bit more about that because you know, to, in my mind, you can't just take any two D image and bam, pull it out. No, I don't. I don't. There, I, I you must have. They were downloading a three D model. I assume that it was some kind of metadata on there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I, assume I didn't. That you have to have something hurt. else in there. There's a lot of uh, details that were left out of some of these, and maybe even yeah. a little bit of smoke and mirrors. Like when they did that three D scanning of that sandcastle, that did seem pretty <laughs> quick for something that a phone could do. And they did get a pretty nice, uh, not only just model, but model with like a texture on it that matched exactly what was there. So, no I, comment. I take- so let's, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so anyway, so I, back to the taking a 3d model of the browser. So have you seen, uh, you've probably seen that with like, I think it was like SketchUp and Google owned them for a while. Now apparently they don't. I didn't realize that. Oh really? Uh, yeah. It's like a separate company. I, I don't know how, I mean, maybe it's under alphabet. Maybe they still do own them. I don't know how that works. I, I have no idea. And I didn't feel like researching it, but um, you know, they have like a massive database of objects in there. So I think it'd be like the same type of thing, right? You, you basically take your real 3d object, you publish it into a catalog and then, and then somehow you could sprinkle some metadata in your webpage and allow people to, I mean, it's, I don't know why, but like the fact that the, the 3d object is like in the real space doesn't, doesn't amaze me anymore. But the fact that I'm like browsing a web page and it's like, would you like to see this in your world? And then you just like, you like rip it out of the page and like put place in the real world. That's just like blowing my mind right now. That is pretty cool. I think that's really cool. Anyway, um, third party HoloLens devices starting at two ninety nine, which is cool. I, I call them. That's just my notes. Uh, I was really like third party VR devices, I guess I should say. Um, so that's pretty cool because that's really low barrier to entry to to getting into into VR. I don't I don't think they were talking about uh, AR as well. I think it was mostly VR. Mm. Um, but I don't I don't know if it matters. I don't. Maybe we'll see no, some but other AR accessories. As as I was listening to like people online on like. Twitter and stuff like that. It seems like a lot of people forgot that the HoloLens is just like the first in the holographic platform. It's not yeah. the only thing. Clearly there. not the so end game. Yeah, it, it isn't. But you know, people I think forgot that, and this kind of just reiterates that there are going to be other players, and Microsoft is not uh, designing this just so they can have one thing to themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, okay. Gaming, game broadcasting built into Windows, which is pretty cool. So you do your little Windows key G, which was our tip a while ago. If you if you want to record your screen, uh, you can actually hit Windows key G, and it'll it'll ask you if the application you're you're looking at is a game. And you just say yes. You just lie to it. And say okay, I can record that. Uh, so there's a screen recorder built into Windows, a secret screen recorder. Uh, but now that can also stream, uh, which is which is pretty cool. Wow. Yeah. Um, and then the two big things. So big thing, number one, surface book. So not surface book two. This is a like mid or not. This is like a mid product cycle incremental upgrade, basically jamming more batteries into the keyboard and then also swapping out the graphics card. So doubling the graphics performance. Um, now they're claiming 16 hours of battery life, which obviously depends on what you're doing. Um, from what I've seen, the surface book, like playing video, um, it will get what it is rated for, um, or maybe a little bit more, which is pretty impressive. So theoretically this thing will play video for 16 hours, uh, which is that's, yeah, that's pretty mind boggling. Mm. It's funny. Cause my, um, probably the, the device I have that has the best battery life, I have this, this MacBook pro and like, I can, I can really stretch it to get a lot of battery life if I want to. Um, it, I think it gets like an extra hour over the surface book just for, for, um, comparison. But if I, when I'm editing this podcast, if I am on battery, I can almost completely drain it in an hour. (laughs) So, so obviously depending on what you're doing changes it. Now my, my MacBook, this one is the, the quad core. So I suspect that's part of it. It has like a 
pretty high wattage processor. I think the service book is a little bit harder to drain that quickly, but yeah, I mean, always take those, the, the battery figures with a grain of salt, of course. Um, I don't know if you notice this, but if you look at some of the pictures, you can see this, there's a tiny hump. The keyboard on this one is actually slightly inclined. Did you see that Carl? No, I was trying chart? to look for it, but uh, I, I, somebody it's did there. tell me to look for I, it. Yeah. You can see it in the photo. So they, they basically like brought up the back of the keyboard a tiny bit. And I think that was the jam or batteries in there, um, which is pretty genius because when the service book is closed, there's that gap that's free space. Like the, it doesn't, whatever you put in there, it doesn't matter because it, it doesn't affect anything. I bet you the keyboard on this one is actually more ergonomic. Um, I don't know what it did to the weight. I, I, I should have looked that up before the show. But uh, I think it's probably better ergonomically, and it has 30% better battery life. So what's not the like there? True. Yeah, so all of these features are kind of in that base, and it's kind of being – I've heard it called like the performance base. Yeah. So it, it would be kind of cool for the people that originally had them if you could just buy like a new base and get kind of like an, an upgrade for half the cost or I something. Know, I totally – if, if it was my decision, that's what I, that's what I would do. And I don't know – you know, I, we have no inside knowledge here, but the um, – the, yeah, the people who own a service book like myself, we are a market where like nobody, nobody's going to go out and, well, maybe, I mean, re- relatively speaking, nobody's going to go out and buy this new incremental upgrade. But if there was a new base for 500 bucks, holy cow, that's a, that, that's a market that you, you know, you could really tap into because this is a market that isn't going to buy a new device at this point, but you could get more money out of them. So I'm not sure why they don't do that. I mean, I could literally like you know, buy the new one and swap it. I, I believe they work together. I had somebody told me, um, I thought they had tried it and said that it worked or they had heard it work, but so I guess it's not really confirmation, but theoretically they, they still work together. So I wish, mm. I wish we could. And then you wouldn't have to pave your machine or anything. Yeah. It would just work. I mean, literally you can trade bases with people. That doesn't matter. It's just battery and GPU. Um, okay. And then surface studio. So this was the big, uh, I guess it wasn't, well, yeah, it was a big surprise. It is big. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. big. Yeah. Physically <laughs> event wise, it was, it was huge. And Panos, man, as far as like presenting, man, that guy, he just hit it out of the park. He just did an amazing job. Um, just kind of leading up to this and then, and then showing this thing off. So it's a, uh, 20 inch, 28 inch screen. It's basically an all in one PC, the PCs in the base and they designed it. It's balanced. So whenever you push with one finger, you can actually adjust this thing. Um, it is just a beautiful machine. It's a 5k display, right? Or is it above 5k? I can't remember. I want to say your notes here have 4k. Mm, okay. So it's at least 4k. <laughs> I thought it was more than, I think it's more than 4k. I think it might be 5k. My, my notes, I was, I was multitasking. I was on Twitter and yeah, it was just fun watching everybody. Uh, 32 gigs of RAM, which is great. The screen is super thin. I think this makes the iMac look, um, kind of sad because when the iMac switched from being thick to being thin, they totally cheated. And all they did was they tapered the edges. So if you look at an iMac, it's got this hump on the back and they're like, look how thin it is, but they don't want you to look at the back. They want you to look at just the edge. Whereas this thing is actually thin the whole way. And we managed to fit a touchscreen in it. Um, true scale, uh, which is kind of a cool feature. I mean, it's, you can do this on any PC, but they were just, uh, or Panos was showing how you could hold up a sheet of paper and it was like exactly the same size, which is pretty cool for if you're doing, um, um, you know, document editing and stuff like that. And you need it to be, um, or you're making like posters or something like that. So Jason, uh, you got me sold on this. How much does it cost? I can yeah. make my well, pocket change. Let changer, me, let me right? finish. But wait, there's more quad core, uh, I seven processor. It's got one cable. Um, it is starting at three K. <laughs> it's $3,000 is what it starts at, which seems high. I mean, it's a, 
Um, it's a high-end device, and it has a high-end price is, is what it comes so down to. Th- but this kind of fits the theme for, you know, the create theme. It's, it's for mm-hmm. those jobs that, for, for those people who have jobs where they need to be creating these high-end assets or, mm-hmm. or, or doing those kinds yeah. of things. There was uh, the guy behind Penny Arcade um, who has famously uh, consulted on uh, the previous versions of the Surface, mm-hmm. uh, ha- has had one for like, I think a week before. He saw this through several uh, stages in its development, but he had one shipped to him a week before this event and was saying uh, kind of how much this transforms his job uh, mm-hmm. from the previous tools that he's had. Yeah, it doesn't replace anything. Like it's an, it's a new product in a new category, really. So like if, if this thing is for you, like you'll know it. <laughs> um, the graphics on it. So people are complaining because the, the graphics are a little bit lower end. that is a little unfortunate because every other spec is really, really high end on this thing. So I do wish that it had a little bit higher graphics performance, but again, it's just the, it's the first gen. Uh, but yeah, this thing, I mean, it's just amazing. And of course, you know, Apple people were, they, there were a lot of comparisons to the, to the iMac. Um, but I, I think this is a beautiful device. And then the other thing was, uh, we announced this, uh, surface dial, which you can actually buy for 99 bucks. It's on your desk and it has, I've seen, I've seen other companies do something similar where you can use it in combination with a mouse to do some cool things for like 3d CAD work and stuff like that. Um, what was neat though, is in the video, uh, for the for the Surface Studio, you can actually put it on the screen and turn it as well, and it brings up this palette, and you can do all this really cool stuff. Like it's just, it was so awesome. That commercial, um, we'll have to include it in the show notes if you go on YouTube and search for Surface Studio. That commercial, if you want to call it a commercial, it's like three minutes. It's like the it's the greatest piece of content in my opinion that we've ever created. Did you watch that one yet, Charles? Um, from well, I guess you would have seen it during the presentation. Yeah, I did. I saw it. Yeah. It's just amazing. The song is amazing. Like everybody on, like on YouTube, like the comments, like who sings this song? Where can I get it? And then just the, the, the way that they, they lead into it, the way the hardware looks, mm-hmm. and then the way that, that you're able to adjust that balance screen with one finger. And then that surface dial, I think like everybody collectively, when it went on the screen, it was like, Oh, what? Yeah. <laughs> so just, it's just amazing. Before we move to Apple, any other comments on the, on the Microsoft stuff? I mean, I just thought, I thought they hit it out of the park. We agreed. They did a great job. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, oh, I just, I'm so excited. I was okay, surprised. So, yeah, so let's talk about Apple because the Apple announcement was the next day. Man, I have never been as disappointed. So you know, I'm I'm a technology guy. I don't consider myself like a, a Microsoft guy or or an Apple guy. Like I'm, I use whatever works. Like I'm wearing an Apple Watch. I we're actually recording the show on a MacBook, but I do my other work on a PC. I do the editing on a MacBook. Like I use everything. Like I don't I don't I don't really care, and I don't really see Apple as big competitors in most areas anyway. Um, but anyway, so so what they what they ended up announcing. First of all, what's interesting the fact that it was the day after. There is a speculation. Um, there's a lot of speculation that they actually were going to announce new iMacs, but they did not. Uh, because think about how silly they would have looked. Because they would have been incremental iMac updates at a premium price tag, and now it all get. Uh, compared to the Surface Studio. Like it would have actually promoted the Surface Studio, I think, more than IMAX, to be honest with you. So the speculation is that they dropped that from their announcement. So if you watched it, it was like, it was just horrible. It was like the the least amount of news that I've ever seen in an Apple event. Um, They announced a TV app for your Apple TV, which is apparently where you take all your apps that were on your Apple TV and now those apps are in your app. Uh, I don't, I don't get it. I'm totally confused <laughs> because the Apple way of doing things has always been like, here's all the stuff you can do. Like, you know, they, I, I, they barely count as an operating system in general, right? They're really a launcher in my opinion. 
And Apple TV is the same way, but now they're like, well, you can launch things, but you can also launch a thing that will launch things. Um, so I'm, I'm guessing there's a, there's a vision there that they're, that they're trying to work toward, but I'm just not seeing it yet. So I thought that was just meh completely. And I don't, I don't use an Apple TV anymore because I think it's, um, you know, it's way too sandboxed. Um, so that was at the beginning. Let's see here. Um, so the only other thing that they really announced was it was their 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 uh, their laptop lineup. Uh, not even the Mac Pro got updated, so it was just their their laptop. So the MacBook Pro, which is which is really I think um, I don't want to say their bread and butter. Um, you know, it's really like a like a flagship machine. I mean, they 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 obviously put like a lot of engineering work into making this a, a beautiful, great machine, and they've updated it. They, um, they, the biggest thing in their mind, and I even got an email on it is they added this like touch screen, you know, that instead of your function keys, they basically replaced that with this little touch screen. Um, I actually found out today that they are using uh watch OS actually to run that. So that, that thing runs independent. And then the computer essentially is talking to watch OS on that, on that touch screen. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it's contextual. Um, they, seem to be obsessed with emoji. So if you're, if you're texting from your desktop or sorry, from your MacBook pro, um, you have quick access to emoji, which, okay, whatever. Um, and then they showed some demos that were just laughable. Um, you know, they were showing like uh, commands for your email application. They're right there on the screen. Like the cursor is right next to it. And instead, you know, they're, they're like looking at the screen. They have to look down, find the, the button and, and push the button. It, it was just, it was absurd. I, I don't, I have no idea what they're thinking there. And and I got excited because they're like, we're going to talk about Final Cut Pro. And I use that for, you know, an hour every week to edit the show. And they're like, look at all the stuff we have on here. And they're showing it. And I'm thinking like, I'm already doing gestures on the trackpad. So I'm going to be like doing this weird thing with like my arms crossed. And I, I don't see how that's going to work. I actually would have liked to have seen like a slider on the left or Actually, what what would be the best is like the Surface Dial. If I could actually use the Surface Dial with my Mac, I'd be pretty excited because mm. being able to do like scrubbing and stuff like that, I think would be uh, would be pretty cool. Um, they've also screwed them some things up on it. They've uh, the keyboard from the from the MacBook, not the MacBook Pro. I think is horrendous, and and I think that because they've removed the the keys are essentially flat. If you go look at photos, you'll see like the keys are flat with the thing. It's kind of like touching on glass. So they have expanded the key travel on the MacBook Pro version of that keyboard, but it's still flat. And I don't know why, but it really drives me crazy. And I, I you know, I, I don't own one, so I don't know if it's something I get used to, but I think they're just really screwing something up there. I think having keys that you can feel, um, you know, clearly I think is, I think is important, but you know, it could just totally be a preference thing. Yeah. Um, of course these things are thinner, lighter, and there is a darker version as well, um, which actually look pretty, pretty badass on the MacBook pro. Yeah. Um, so the, the one thing that actually kind of has me, uh, kind of upset is their move to USB C. Oh which, yeah. That was that of course, that yeah. of course is fine. I I'm fine with that. But if you're, if you're into Apple and you buy a brand new MacBook and you buy a yeah. brand new iPhone, you have one that only takes USB C and one that only so takes many lightning. problems. And yeah. I, I don't want to carry a dozen different uh, dongles or adapters to get yeah. them connected. I know this is so on Apple. I mean, they, they, I, they always try to they push the envelope. Like they, they are just jerks about like pushing us to the next thing. And like, you know, we kind of get over it at some point, but it, this is unbelievable now. Like y- if you were to march into an Apple store and say, give me your latest stuff, I will take your laptop and your, give me your best, most expensive laptop. Give me your best, most expensive iPhone. <laughs> and you, they don't, you can't even connect them. <laughs> that's what's crazy. So, so you're like, okay, that's okay. I'll, I'll take the adapter. So you buy the adapter and you're like, okay, I hooked that up. Okay. But now you I'm need gonna two listen. adapters. 
Yeah, well, you yeah, need, you need, you need the, the lightning to USB C and USB C to or lightning yeah. to USB and USB to USB C to get it. To yeah, work. yeah. And then and then you're like, okay, well, I need to calm down. I got to listen to some music. So I take out my brand new headphones and I go to plug in my laptop. No. Because it has an audio jack. They didn't have the courage to remove it like they did with the phone. It's like, what the heck? These things are just fundamentally incompatible to the box. So I don't know. That that seems like a huge pain to me is having, I mean, having a giant machine that I can't plug anything to where I need all these dongles. Like I understand it on a small machine, but on a big machine, there's just no, I don't know. They, they, they should have done like two USB-C and two USB. And that would have let me, that would have let everybody transition. So I don't know. I don't know what they were thinking. So, you know, I'm obviously... Um, you know, you can call me biased or whatever, but I, I, I think the contrast between the, if you go read, just read the comments on like Hacker News or something like that, I think Microsoft just, just killed it this time. Apple fell flat. Apple stock went down. I don't know what our, if Microsoft stock is up since then, but still over 60. Yeah. It's just, it's just amazing. So I'm just, I'm just so excited to be working for this company. Oh, okay. Well, let's talk about like really bad things all the time, all over, uh, chaos engineering. Uh-oh. <laughs> chaos no, it's a cool, good, it's a, man. it's a cool, yeah, chaos is good. That's true. That's true. So, um, so you came on to talk about something called chaos engineering, which sounds really awesome. Mm-hmm. Like I, I want that to be my title. That's really cool. <laughs> cool. So, so what, so what is chaos engineering? So chaos engineering, um, is fundamentally about fault injection, but that's sort of at a narrow level. At a broader at a broader level, chaos engineering is about if you're designing software to be fault tolerant, resilient, um, you build in a lot of redundancy, you have to prove it. Mm-hmm. Um, because as developers, yeah, we write unit tests, the function's gonna return when it's supposed to return. We run all these types of tests and then we send our stuff out. And our stuff happens to be part of a distributed system of coupled and loosely coupled components, and that's the cloud. And the cloud is all about resiliency, mm-hmm. right? You have to, there has to be redundancy. Azure itself is a very redundant system. It's highly resilient at the platform level, right? The fabric controller, which is the kernel of Azure, is super resilient. Uh, and they do all kinds of crazy things to make sure that that's true. So that things that are operating up on the platform level work reliably. And so chaos engineering is, a, is actually a, um, a formal discipline in the software engineering field that was invented uh, by Netflix and, you know, at least the terminology. But Netflix 100% has really moved the bar super high for applying this kind of resilience testing and validation and and verification to the cloud um, because they're a service and they need to be resilient in the face of what is guaranteed in the cloud, which are Mm -hmm. problems. So we all know that the cloud um, is built for fail. There's a lot of fail in the cloud. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and as a developer, you have to write, I like to think of it as expectations versus exceptions. So problems in the cloud are expectational. Like I'm going to expect them to happen. It's not an exception when I can't reach my endpoint. That's going to happen. I'm going to mm-hmm. design with that in mind. Yeah. And so there's all this other wor- things that the, I mean, a distributed system if I have one loosely coupled component over here that's waiting for a response from an endpoint, 
And I have this other component over here that's going to need a result of that interaction. Maybe there's some data processing is going to go on. When I get the data from that endpoint, I'm going to put it somewhere else. This thing's going to know where to look. There's systems where, and we've experienced this in Azure, where just having an endpoint latency, getting a response from an endpoint, has broken a component further down the chain, which yep. created a really hard-to-find bug. And so net, what Netflix is, is trying to do with their, you know, we can talk about their Simeon army, and one of which is Chaos Monkey, um, but Netflix created this Simeon army of monkeys. Um, and in, in their case, kind of shifting right into that, um, uh, a chaos monkey basically will turn on and off resources. So it'll shut a VM down, it'll restart a VM, it'll mess around with things in a cluster of VMs, break communication channels. And then what happens is, and they do this in production, which I love. Yeah. So they have really that's the large. Part where you're like, you're like, okay, that's sounds like a good idea. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. Wait, wait, not, yeah. not production. <laughs> exactly. So really chaos engineering is um, a discipline in, in the software development field where you test, validate, and verify that a, a system, and this is what I'll talk about that's not related to the cloud, but any software system um, is fault tolerant and redundant. So on an airplane, when you're flying on a 747, for example, that's a very, very redundant software system inside right. of that cockpit. Um, it's not a cloud system. It's a right. client system. And it's incredibly redundant. So you have these components that you've built up into a system. And what chaos engineering strives to help you prove is that if something, if one of the components go down, you don't take down the whole system, right? And that's not a new concept in software engineering. But it is a new concept in the way that Netflix has applied it to the cloud with a chaos monkey, a conformity monkey, latency monkey, and the simian army that'll go out and randomly do bad things. Uh, and as a developer, because they do this in production during business hours, as a developer, you're going to be alerted pretty quickly when something goes wrong, when you didn't take into account that, hey, I can't access this endpoint, but I just brought the other side of the system down. Mm -hmm. So I have to fix my bug. Or we have to sort of rethink our dependencies. So it helps you think about dependencies. It helps you think about resiliency, redundancy, and fault tolerance. And so as a chaos engineer, that's what we focus on. So, for example, I focus on the target on Azure. Uh, I'm not a, a Linux guy yet. Um, and so I focus <laughs> yeah. on sort of Windows as sort of the foundational system. Uh, the platform. And so, you know, I've been working on um, a project called Bedlam, uh, which is something I wrote uh, a year ago, a couple years ago, actually, that actually did chaos on clients. And so you can imagine a world where an, a, an application is running and you want to have Bedlam underneath it. I don't want to uh, sideload the application into a stable environment. I want to mm -hmm. sideload it into Bedlam. Yeah. And because I know what the Bedlam components are, I can say, ah, oh, yes, when it couldn't reach this endpoint, the app crashed, right? Mm -hmm. That's, you got to yeah. fix that as a dev. This is a, this is a crappy virus infected computer yeah. and I don't care. You should keep running as, as expected. Yeah. The, the whole, the whole goal, and it's an excellent that you said that because the whole goal of, um, chaos engineering, uh, and sort of resiliency proving resiliency provers, if you're a math person, um, resiliency solvers is to ensure 100% uptime. Mm -hmm. That's the end of the story. If you are a service in the cloud and you care about being up all the time, I mean, it is true that 
there are services in the cloud where it doesn't matter if we don't have 100% uptime. All we do is once a week, we go grab a bunch of data and stick it somewhere else, parse it, analyze it, do something, boom. That's all the service does. I don't care if it's not always up. But if you're Netflix or, I don't know, Azure, <laughs> for example, yeah. you want to be up, man. You have <laughs> to be up. And so Netflix, so chaos engineering and chaos um, for in the cloud can go from, we're going to turn this VM off. We're going to start it. We're going to shut it down. To, we're going to destroy the machine. We're going to do a blue screen, or we're just going to kill the VM. Or we're going to do some network latency, or we're going to cut the network off. Or we're going to do resource, or basically request response redirection. And so you're not actually going to get where you think you're going to get. Yes, you're connected to the internet, but you're not getting to the endpoint you thought you were getting at. What are you going to do about that? So in the case of Netflix, for example, I've, and I've noticed this. If you, sometimes you can notice when you launch Netflix that things aren't exactly as you'd expect them to be. Like maybe you're missing my list, right? Yes. Or you're missing like well, because I you watched. That's like, that happens all the time, dude. That is the <clears throat> and, and they what they do is that could either be one of two things. You could it's be a separate service. You could actually be a test. Yeah. So what what Netflix does because they run their their chaos in production. Mm-hmm. A small percentage of customers like us will be if, in, impacted. However, mm-hmm. the impact in that scenario, when I couldn't get to the endpoint to figure out what Jason just watched or likes to watch, I'm not going to give him a bunch of placeholder graphics. Yeah, I, I'm not going to freeze. Like you're right. going to get something, and then after a while, things will come back. Mm-hmm. So it's all about. At the end of the day, you know, I'll just finish with one thing. All of this is about ensuring that the end user, whether it be human or not. So another service or a human being that you aren't impacted by what is true in the cloud in any complex distributed system, uh, and that's failure. So you're protected from failure because the engineering that's gone into the system um, is redundant and fault tolerant. Mm -hmm. Infragistics, Ultimate UX and UI tools, and Enterprise Mobility Solutions, SharePlus and Report Plus, enable high-performance apps on any device, faster data insights, simplified collaboration, and market-leading security, all backed by comprehensive support. With Infragistics Ultimate UX and UI Development Toolkit, you can ensure mission-critical applications delivering a superior user experience on the desktop, web, and native device environments for iOS and Android. With the latest BI tools, wow your users with dashboards providing the data insights that they need when and where they need it, all at a low total cost of ownership. Try it today. Download a free trial at infragistics.com and follow them for the latest updates in UX and UI development, reporting, and collaboration at Infragistics on Twitter. And remember, each week, if we pick your comment on the show, you will get a free copy of Infragistics Ultimate UX and UI Toolset. So I'm just picturing like literal monkeys like in our data centers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, like you know, jumping on the servers and like unplugging exactly. Cables. That's why they call. Yeah, them. exactly correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just funny picturing that. But um, you 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 said a term, and I want to make sure we define it. You mentioned fault injection. Yep. Can can you tell us what that is? Sure. So fault injection is um the bread and butter of chaos engineering. So when you're running, say, you know, a chaos monkey, uh, it's a fault that's going to bring down the service. So for mm-hmm. example, I can send a fault 
into the system that says, turn, the, turn this machine off. So without getting too much into the weeds, you can design uh, a chaos system where you actually have a rage agents running inside of these virtual machines, right? And you, mm -hmm. and you can inject uh, you can inject faults via those agents into the individual VM to cause all kinds of havoc. Like I can no longer connect to the network. Um, mm -hmm. I have I can't access the disk. Uh, yeah. There's no memory available for my process. Or I'm going to kill a very important process and bring the machine down. Any number of things you can do. So fault injection really is a it's an old testing. Uh, we've all been engineers for a long time. Fault injection is what we do when we validate, uh, you know, we run tests on our own client software that we're writing. It's just you, you inject problems into either the yeah. system or into the code. So one of the things you can also do with chaos engineering, and we do this uh, in a Microsoft technology that I can talk about briefly um, that, that exists today that is used internally and project I have been luckily uh, been looped into with a, a team of amazing programmers uh, in Azure that are experts in this domain. But there's also tools out there you can use. This is, like fault injection at running code is not rocket science. Um, MSR has had this technology called Detour since 2012, 2002, where you can basically change what, what Win32 does with function calls. <laughs> so <laughs> the moral of the story is fault injection is really... Um, I think a canonical example would be I have a function that returns um, a Boolean mm -hmm. and everything that's using it, we want to make sure that if it returns true, that you do what you're supposed to do. But what happens if it returns false and you don't do what you're supposed to do? So you yeah. can, for, while at runtime, I can inject that this function returns false all the time, never returns true. Yeah. Um, or I could say this function is going to throw an exception, out of memory exception, which of course you yeah. can't handle. So I wouldn't do that, but I could throw a, if it's a function that makes a HTTP request, I'll throw a, an HTTP exception. Then I'll do that from the outside by injecting that fault into the running code and to like see that. what consumers are doing. Yeah. So fault injection is the bread and butter of chaos engineering. It's not the only thing, but it's what we all do. It's what, you know, that's what, that's what monkeys are doing. Yeah, I love that in code because the the reality is you can you can scan the code and actually know like what possible exceptions could be raised. Yes, you can. Um, but yeah, you could have so, IL. Yeah, yeah, exactly. IL so, is good. Yeah, so I mean, you you should just be what, whatever those underlying components are. They should randomly be throwing those exceptions, and you should be testing that. Yeah. So with the two examples that you gave, really uh, Netflix and Azure, mm -hmm. you you talked about like the end goals is to prove that you can have that reliability and, and, and uptime. If I have a, a project of my own, are, is that the only reason why I should be looking into chaos engineering or is are there other uh, end things that I can get out of it? Absolutely. That's a great question. Uh, <clears throat> I would say 100% absolutely. If you're writing software that's going to be used by people, if your software does something, then you should adopt chaos engineering as part of your engineering workflow. So just as you write unit tests, right? Sometimes, I mean, mm -hmm. not everybody does. I'll be honest. I mean, not everybody does. But it, but you do things in your code base to ensure that you're going to be as resilient as possible, right? Mm -hmm. What if this person, like if I have a generic function and I want to make sure that, you know, I do the right thing if something unexpected comes in or whatever, you write your code correctly. You, you use exceptions properly. You handle them. At least you think you are. Um but in reality, when your code actually runs in a real system, 
in a real environment, won't you, wouldn't you really like to know, um, how do I really embrace failure? Am I embracing failure? So the cool thing about the cloud is it forces you to embrace failure, right? Again, failure is not exceptional in the cloud. Right. Yeah. You're. Yeah. So you're making the cloud sound really bad, and 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 I and I always do the same thing, right? I always say, hey, we don't we don't just expect failures in the cloud. We we plan for them to happen. Mm-hmm. Um. And but then I also make the point that failures happen on prem. Yeah. Have you ever Have you ever thought? And and I just haven't like sat down and and thought about this, but. Like, why is that? Why, why do we go from this, this environment that, you know, the, the customer says like, well, that whole cluster over there, I've had it running for two years, you know, without touching it. And now I go into the cloud and you say like stuff is going to break. Like, well, do you, have no, any, do you have any insight into that? I do. Because for example, when you're on premise, you own every piece of the distributed system that's running yeah. on premise. When you're running in the cloud, you do not. You do not own it. You do not own any piece of it. And what I mean by own is you didn't write the networking infrastructure for AWS or Azure or Google. You didn't write the way that it deals with um, orchestration of VMs and, and taking ARM templates or Spinnaker. You know, you guys know what Spinnaker is mm-hmm. um, for the AWS world. Um, so the you don't own that. So the, I guess what I'm trying to say is that even you can step back. Chaos engineering, before Netflix was even a company, chaos engineering was actually being used in the Windows kernel team. Why? Because if something goes wrong in the kernel, there's only one thing that ever happens. You blue screen. Yeah. There's nothing you can do about it. The, Memory the, maybe. Good, old, the good old days. <laughs> the good old days. Because I, I mean, as a kernel, like I started off at Microsoft in Windows and you know, whereas I didn't ever work with anybody like David Cutler, but Dave Cutler is an engineer I look to um, as just a phenomenal, um, the bar we should all hope to achieve. Do not write bugs. <laughs> Don't write bugs. Yeah. Like that's, that's the goal. Do not write bugs. And the only way you can really know that you didn't write a bug is by seeing how your code operates in a larger context, like you writing a component in the kernel. You don't know if you wrote a bug, it passed all your tests, your code looks solid, super fast, super efficient, you're not leaking memory, yeah, man. But you're not hardened enough because, oops, in this situation, that component killed you or the other way around. So I would argue that when I say the cloud is full of fail, I don't mean to make it sound like the cloud is a non-resilient, non-redundant, non-capable place. I mean, from a developer's perspective, if you put those glasses on, while you're coding, you're going to write better code and you're going to write better tests yeah. for your code. And I think all developers should be chaos engineers. Yeah. I actually think we're kind of using it as an excuse to, to, to push chaos engineering, to be honest with you, because the reality was that system that you haven't touched in two years, like it's going to explode at 4 a.m. And oh, by the way, you forgot to back it up. And, mm-hmm. and you know, you're, and I've, I've actually had this happen. Okay. Now it shut down. Let's turn it back on. Oh, we found out our UPS didn't work. So let's let's start our servers back up. Oh no, the drives won't spin up. Like they physically won't spin up because there's this little secret. Like with spinning disks, like an object in motion tends to stay in motion, right? Yeah. You know, the disks, it takes minimal power to keep those things going. But all of a sudden they stop after running for two years. Mm-hmm. And oh, we're coming to find out that, you know, I don't know, the motor, I don't know if it's the motor, the motor controller, the power, what the deal is, but like it won't start spinning again. 
you know, like, oh, geez, you know, so, so we used to just, we used to just say like, okay, well, we think failure won't happen too often. It'd probably happen more than what people remember. I think, I think there's a chemical that's released um, after a server goes down that like wipes your memory. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, we, we, we forget about those. At least that's how it works on prem. It doesn't work like that in the cloud. Um, you know, that, that happens on prem and it's like this horrible, horrible experience where it is working on it for the next, you know, 16 hours and production is down. Um, but I would think everybody would rather have, have their system work more like Netflix, you know, all production went down and then all of a sudden like, Hey, when we printed this one report, like the logo didn't come out and it's like, okay, we'll just print it again. Like if you have to have the logo printed again or deal with it and it's like, Oh, okay. And if, if it ran like that 24 by seven, like people would be pretty happy. So, sure. um, so yeah, I, I think the whole cloud, uh, I think it's just kind of an excuse. Like people are trying to scale up things, mm-hmm. and that's when they're adding additional components. Mm-hmm. But I think we're just kind of using it as an excuse. Like, hey, this would be a great time since we're already architecting this thing for the cloud. Mm-hmm. This would be a great time to make it so that it also doesn't crash yep. if one tiny little resource goes down. Let's not make a big deal out of these things. Or in the case of uh, Carl, I can see you're, you've you've have a blue around you. He's got nice. aura. So you're going to ask something. Yeah. So, you know, I'm kind of looking at like chaos engineering now as you know, like, how, how can I justify this to a boss or a client or a customer, you know, to have, you know, enough resources to take over when you take something out in production, perhaps sounds like you kind of need to over provision and maybe there's an additional cost to that. Mm-hmm. So how can I justify this to, like I said, a boss, a client, a customer to, you know, agree that this is in the best interest? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. In fact, it's, it's not that easy. Um, I can't mention any partner names, but a, a consistent concern that some legitimate, like legitimate concern is, look, you're asking me to put destructive software into my environment. <laughs> How are you going to guarantee that you're not going to destroy me? Like, yeah. I, like, are you, like, and I don't really know what the software is doing. And that's, that's almost that's almost proving your point, though. Exactly. And that's the funny thing because I I know I've told this story like three times on on the show, mm-hmm. but like at, at a company that I used to work for, we had uh we you know we had servers, we had a server room, we had battery backup, and I would I would always say like what happens when the power goes out? Like we got a UPS for that. I'm like okay, well what happens when the power goes out for more than thirty minutes? Oh well then the the server is all gracefully shut down, and then we have the startup procedure. Uh, actually, it wasn't even a procedure. It's like then we in in our heads we know how to start it back up in what order. And I was like, okay, well I'm just gonna I'm gonna go turn off the power. There's a big thing. They're like, no, 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 no. I mean, they were like freaking like, don't ever turn off the power. I'm like, wait a second. I'm like, you guys just told me this is a non-issue. Yeah. And 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 what I ended up doing is we we first started on the weekend, basically running some drills. Like I'm going to make this a regular occurrence. We are I'm going to cause havoc, mm-hmm. and and you're not going to lose sleep over it anymore. We're going to do it on our terms. Great. And uh and and it. It, it actually, it, it showed that our process was actually completely wrong. We were able to get it documented and then they weren't afraid of it anymore. You know, they're just like, okay, yeah, you can turn off the power whenever you want. Like we're, we're, we're ready for it. And that was awesome. That's, that's when I saw the, the impact of this. Yeah. But yeah, for, for Netflix, I can't imagine like the, uh, you know, they, they have to have like extra servers, right? Like extra capacity because it's like, Hey, we know these things will be dying and being killed. And well, they have a very, the way that they, with, 
so basically they have a very, very, very structured chaos. Mm -hmm. Like they're only going to add certain amounts of chaos in certain areas. Mm. And then they like aggressively monitor. So one of the things that's also critical about chaos engineering is yes, they're adding structured chaos because you know what these fault injections are. You know what problems you're emulating, for example. Um, And, you know, in some sense, you have to aggressively monitor so you see really what goes on. I mean, it's not very useful to add chaos and not know that something bad went <laughs> happened just because it didn't manifest itself let, in something going let's down. Wait for, let's wait for our CSAT numbers like six months from now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, they, they, and they, like I said, Netflix does all of this in production and yeah. real customers do get impacted, but they, yeah. they keep it and dial it down to maybe small percentage very small percentage of people yeah. actually experience this. But yeah. like I said, we've all seen it. Using Netflix, mm-hmm. like, wow, that took an unusually long time to load. There's nothing yeah. wrong with my network. Oh, must be a chaos monkey. Yeah. So which is actually kind of cool. Um, but that only happens rarely. So one other thing I would mention about chaos engineering is it teaches you how to design for resiliency. Mm-hmm. And so once we have a bunch of cloud programmers and programmers in general designing for resiliency, designing for stability, redundancy, and fault tolerance, we're going to be talking about a lot more high-quality code and better experience for end users as the cloud is the future. We know that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk about the the tools that are available. Sure. So you, you sold me on it. I want to start doing it. What do I do? So, but, you know, Azure, uh, excuse me. So Chaos Monkey is open source. Uh which is a wonderful thing. If you're a Java, you a Java guy, huh? You like me? Linux? No. Okay. So for <laughs> now, so I will say this: we'll start with one that's really easy to use. This is sure. uh, called Chaos Dingo. Okay. It's an Azure-based solution. It's Node.js. I know how much you like JavaScript. Yep. Um, yep. TypeScript. And what Chaos Dingo does is this, pretty much similar to what Chaos Monkey does. It will turn VMs on, turn them off, restart them. Right. So you add sort of that virtual machine problem. What happens if my if my VM goes down? Now, obviously, in that case, if you're a single instance service, I, what I don't know what to, I don't know how, what to tell you. Um, it means <laughs> what it means is you didn't design for resiliency. So, yeah. if you are gonna gonna have a service that's running in the cloud and you only provision one VM, you're already wrong. It's already a bad design right. because if that VM goes down. Or if something's going kind of crazy inside of it and the memory's gone crazy and the disk is thrashing, um, what are you going to do? Or the CPU's max for some reason. You're dead in the water. It's just not smart to use one VM. So that's one simple case. So things like Chaos Dingo, you can can shut things down, restart them. There's more advanced things uh, in sort of service fabric has built in uh, fault injection uh, and, and ways for you to add chaos to your service fabric cluster. Uh, they have an API, so it's part of the platform. That's a really nice approach. So they I already didn't know baked, that. Yeah, they already baked it into their platform. So you can do things like, you know, take, uh, as you know, in a service fabric, you have a cluster of mm-hmm. nodes. You can take nodes out. You can restart them. You can um, basically really impact the service fabric cluster. Yeah. If you want to do more interesting things, you, you know, as you know, uh, in PaaS, you have a virtual machine underneath. Mm-hmm. So in Azure, um, one tool that you could use would be a tool like Bedlam, mm-hmm. where as part of my deployment uh, of my PaaS service on Azure, 
I have some code that runs as a service on said machine, and it will then run through one of my tests, which will be inject this fault, then inject that fault, inject this fault, wait, see what happens. And then you have sort of this machine level chaos where you can know, wow, man, I didn't do a very good job dealing with latency, right? Yes, I could reach an endpoint. I determined because as a developer, when you write code, you don't just check to see, can I reach this destination? Mm-hmm. Or am I connected to the internet? You might want to know things <laughs> like, what's the latency characteristic right now? How yeah. long is it going to take me to get a response? Mm-hmm. And so you could use some open source software that I'm not ashamed of um, called iNetSpeed, WinRT, and it's a UWP app anyway. But in that, it's all open source code. You can write your own version of this where you can really quickly uh, make a good guess of what the latency is uh, for a given endpoint using an API. Yeah. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. So that there's tools. Um, Chaos Monkey from Netflix is a open source project on GitHub. All the sources there. Um, I highly recommend people go look at that. Yes, it's in Java. Um, yes, you have to learn how to build using all the tools that are surrounding that. But Java is really easy to understand if you're a C-sharp programmer. Mm-hmm. And the good news is something tells me, I, I hear wind of... Um, some work we were going to do with Netflix to bring Chaos Monkey to Azure. Okay. So, you know, I will say this. Chaos Engineering at Microsoft, um, there are, there's a one team today that's working on something called Fault Injection System. And the Fault Injection System is a technology that basically enables you to do external fault injections into a VM or for you to basically um, have agent-based fault injection, where you have agents running inside of your virtual machines that communicate back with a centralized service that'll let these agents know, hey, I have something for you to do. All of this over a secure channel, all of it over, like, there's a shared public key. You can't randomly start messing around with people's VM instances, which is what one of the problems was with Azure Chaos Monkey, which is a really cool project started a while ago, but security was sort of abysmal. Um, so now we have a team that's sort of in the identity team at Microsoft. Their security is a big deal for them. Yeah. That have built a really cool system um, that you know today is Windows only. Um, so and unfortunately, the people who are watching this aren't going to be able to access this. Uh, it's single tenant um, and it's not open source. At a, and I can't speak for them if that's going to happen, but it could very well happen. Mm-hmm. Um, the moral of the story is at Microsoft, there's fault injection going on all over from Windows to the cloud. There's chaos engineering specifically going on uh, in the Fizz team. And uh, you could imagine that the Fabric Controller, which is the kernel of Windows Azure, mm-hmm. there's a fair amount of chaos that goes on there to ensure that yeah. the Fabric, because if the Fabric Controller goes down, you're dead. Azure yeah. goes down. Azure's gone. So I don't know what a blue screen in Azure would look like, <laughs> uh, but I have an assumption that if the kernel like blue screened Azure, we'd be we'd be bumming. But of course, yeah. you have, which brings me to my final point on this. Um, one of the things that a lot of cloud people don't do um, is test for how you handle catastrophe, mm-hmm. catastrophic failure. Um, like, what is your catastro- What is your plan? Like, do you have a plan? And sadly, not a lot of people actually have a plan for that. And so there's work that can be done to like, let's, let's simulate the death of a data center. Data center goes away. Mm-hmm. So regionally, you're screwed. 
mm-hmm. what are you going to do about that? Netflix does this, right? They have yeah. like they'll do re- they'll test. Let's let's remove this region, and what happens? Yeah. Right? How fast can we reroute to get people? the content they want that happen to be yep. being served from this region. So there's all kinds of interesting stuff going on at a much macro, kind of a larger scale problem. But from my own perspective, I've been focusing a lot on just from the developer, like in my own code, I want to I want to design for resiliency and redundancy and fault tolerance. Yep, yep, awesome. So since you've been doing this for a while, are there any kind of faults that are maybe more important to test for or maybe more important to do first? Yes, great. Outstanding question. Network latency, networking. If you're yeah, an app, Facebook, yeah. yeah. What, so actually, they they had some kind of outing in, in some location with really poor internet, mm. and they realized how much their stuff sucked, and then they fixed it. Yes. Um. So so if you, especially if you're like a, a client app team, mm-hmm. like your your next company outing should be at somewhere with terrible internet. <laughs> Great. So I mean that the the cool thing about network latency, uh, like you can go out and find this technology on the web. Uh, it's called the Network Network Emulation Toolkit for Windows or Network Emulation Windows Toolkit, NUT. It's uh, no longer supported. Um, <laughs> it was developed by, the, by MSR, and a okay. bunch of it is actually used inside of Visual Studio. So Visual Studio's network emulation software is really uh, NUT, right? Okay. It's based on NUT. It's the same underlying thing. They use the same driver. And so you have a network emulation driver. It has an API. It's a little clunky to work with if you're a managed person because you have to load a native DLL into memory and then and then know how to program against it without P invoke. Really, yeah, it's sort of P invokey. And this one, you actually load library. So you P invoke load library, and um, that's how you get access to the native object. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not just P invoking uh, the DLL itself. Your load library, your P invoking load library, getting access to to that DLL. You also have the class, the class identifiers. It's really kind of ugly, commy kind of .NET-y kind of code. Mm-hmm. But that said and done, once you get past that, it's 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 really easy to use. Um, the other thing you could do is there's assemblies. I don't think this is going to be a problem. There's a there's private assemblies um, in Visual Studio that have two DLLs you could use. One is called um, Microsoft.VisualStudio.Test.NetworkEmulation. The other one's Microsoft.VisualStudio.Test.NetworkEmulation.API. Um, those two things you can actually um, write your own for your local test environment and program against them. Okay. And so the, what I'm trying to say is the number one problem we found in our group, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. Um, is, you know, like I mentioned, we have some automation software I wrote where we an app comes in, we launch the app, and then apes, not monkeys, apes, because ape, not monkey, ape smart. So apes would interact intelligently with the application by inter- figuring out what's in the UI tree and then doing things. So it was very algorithmic in that sense. Yeah. But under underneath that, we would add Bedlam to the environment. And so what happens when we're trying to use app, you know, why? And customers using it, and then we change emulation mode to 56k modem or 100k, right? Or we really add extreme latency. Apps crash, mm-hmm. UI hangs, whatever, whatever the case is. And so we can immediately tell that this app was not designed with resiliency in mind, because what the developer is doing is saying, "Ah, I need to go grab data from this endpoint. Okay, create an HTTP object, blah blah blah, make a request, and 
Or I'll do something like, hey, is there connect? Can I connect the internet? Yes, boom, great. Go give me all this data. I want 100 megabytes. Let's start downloading it. Mm-hmm. What about if you're on a latent connection, right? What if there's bandwidth problems? So, blah, 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 man. I'm very passionate about that because networking, especially in the cloud, is huge. Yeah. I mean, there's a latency monkey. Well, I want people to worry about this because we've all experienced it. We've all we've all been on a mobile device with poor internet, you know, like hotel Wi-Fi, mm-hmm. and just stuff doesn't work right. Or like the, you know, you 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 connect to the Wi-Fi and there's the splash screen where you have to accept the terms, and then all the app, the apps just go crazy. And like Outlook is like, this certificate doesn't match. Are you sure you want me to use this? And mm-hmm. like it's just like, oh. It's like, just, just deal with it. You know, failure should be normal. Just, just deal with it. Amen, man. Yeah. So, so my last question relating to that is, is there any like problems related to chaos engineering that haven't yet been solved? My answer to that would be absolutely. I mean, 100, 100% yes, because a couple of things, chaos engineering as a discipline, again, invented largely by Netflix as chaos engineering um, is super young. It was invented with the chaos monkey, with the simian army. And so, again, adding chaos to distributed systems is not new. Anybody who's built distributed systems has to test them. And if you build a distributed system, things like fault tolerance are important. Again, going back to airplanes, right? Inside the cockpit is a distributed system of software components that must be fault tolerant. So they have to prove it. They have to test it. Right? Yeah, it has to be provably redundant. Exactly. And I can assure you they run lots and lots and lots of tests. So they have yeah. chaos engineers. <laughs> um, I think one of the things to me that's I think is the largest area where we could where we could innovate in this space is I'd like to see platform providers, Azure, AWS, Google, build in chaos engineering API That'd be cool. That'd be into cool. their platform so that when I deploy... It's a dial. Amen. So <laughs> when I'm deploying to Azure, for example, with an ARM template, I'm able to basically tell Azure, and by the way, I want to deploy into a chaotic environment. Yeah. And these are the things I would like to see happen. Oh, and by the way, do them randomly. Yeah. And then, oh, yes, and I want this to be highly, highly monitored using a monitor service that's already there. Plus, and here's some custom things I'd like you to do. And they're going to be living inside of my VM for example. So the future of chaos engineering will probably become, you know, a service. Chaos as a service. And, I, <laughs> and by the way, there's a startup that has formed. Um, one of the guys is from Netflix uh, and they are going to do just that. They're okay. building chaos as a service. And so um, they're going to have to figure out one of the problems. And it's an interesting problem is I'm not going to give you my, my source code. Instead, I'm going to deploy my service into an environment that you have access to in some capacity such that you really would be a service and I can rely on just deploying my environment, deploying my solution. You're running your magic because we have, you know, there are some ways to do it in Azure that I, that I can think of one of which I'm kind of prototyping where you have a shared network, um, sort of a peer net, right? So it's a VNet peer. And I can communicate with other VMs because we share the same network, assuming we're in the same region. So you can imagine deploying your solution into this world, and then I have a chaos server that's running, and we share the same VNet, and I can then communicate with this service that I don't own. You didn't deploy it into my world. You can trust that I'm not going to do anything too bad, but 
again, you have to trust I'm going to do something bad because that's the whole mm-hmm. point. Yeah. Monkeys cut cables, right? The other thing I would answer that question to, uh, which is also I'm very passionate about, is is I want to create chaos apes, apes not monkey, things that mm-hmm. learn, right? Apes that are able to look at a service and without understanding what the service does, spend some time learning what the service does by evaluating network traffic, for example. Ah, it seems to call this endpoint quite often. I'm going to cut it off yeah. without actually having to know that, right? So building more intelligence into chaos is something that the is rife with green fields. Uh, that's, okay. that's what I would say. Yeah. Anything else you wanted to mention before we move on? <laughs> um, just again, just again, I'd like to call out to people to uh, um, make chaos engineering uh, a guaranteed first-class citizen of your overall approach to software quality. Mm-hmm. Even if you're writing a UWP app or you're writing an iOS app, design with resiliency, redundancy, and fault tolerance in mind. Not just by handling all exceptions that could possibly happen, and I've seen. I'm here, resume next, dude. I've seen. <laughs> well, I've seen that in in our world yeah. because the in XAML you can capture all application level yep. exceptions. Now these aren't going to be non-critical. Any critical exception takes your app down, but in reality, any unhandled exception, be it critical or not, takes your app down. Yeah. So a lot of developers, unfortunately, will take the you know the approach of, hey, I'm just going to catch all application exceptions. <laughs> And then I did. I know I'm not going to cry because it's not critical. But (laughs) then you might leave your application in a bad state. Yeah, you have to be really, really careful. So, um, you know, invalid operation exception. What do you do with that? How do you handle it? Well, you wrote the code. You figure out how you handle it. Use a different component to solve the same problem. I'm having flashbacks because I would do that exact thing and then just like pop up a message like "sorry" and unknown errors occurred. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a I'm a horrible human being. Hey, man, that's Uh, the other thing. no error is unknown. Yeah. Because the only way yeah, you can because you can always use a hex code. Yeah, there can't be an unknown error. <laughs> no, I'm just I'm kidding. I'm thinking of like Windows Update with his hex codes, like right on zero so X. I'd recommend I'd recommend your your listeners to to get into chaos engineering. Mm-hmm. Um, add it to your tool belt. It's a really cool name, as you mentioned. But yeah. anybody who's written redundant and fault tolerant software before is already aware of this approach. Yeah, right. Fault injection awesome. is bread and butter. And we need like a bunch of people to get together. Uh, the chaos engineering community is very small, uh, and it should be very large. Like every developer should be a chaos engineer. Well, I'm just I'm just thinking the reason is like your mailing list. Like sometimes it only goes to half the people in the group. Uh, sometimes you send out the wrong days for the conferences. <laughs> Fair it's just it's just crazy. Right on. Oh, yeah. This is this is cool stuff. Uh, okay, very cool. Carl, what do we have for the pick of the week? So as you had explained this earlier, I looked it up. Uh, the Azure team has written example uh, service that you can write for the Azure service fabric to exercise the chaos test that's built in. So if anybody's interested in getting, you know, trying something a little bit more from scratch than trying to like use the Simeon army or something like that. Uh, here's a, a, an example from the Azure team on GitHub uh, to get going with that. Very cool. And then you also have a dev tip of the week. Yeah. So uh, I know a lot of people that give presentations on a regular basis, and this kind of fits in with today's theme too. Uh, 
you know, it's, it's conference season and like a good presenter, he had stayed up the night before practicing his Azure talk. Well, the next morning he goes to give his talk and Azure has updated and the menus on the left side are totally different. It's not even that, that things have totally changed, but things got rearranged. So this isn't a technical tip, but go into the Azure portal often and just make sure you're familiar with where things are at. Um, If you're an Azure dev, because they will change uh, without warning. I don't know how you get around that issue. What, I, what I've done in the past is like, I will walk through the entire process and grab a screenshot of everything so that at least, and I keep it in the PowerPoint, like in an appendix. So if like, if I can't get to Azure, cause it's usually terrible conference Wi-Fi or something like that, I can at least go to those slides and walk through that way. Uh, it's a, and, and it may not somebody. look like this now, but it looked like this yesterday. Trust me. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I deal with chaos. Okay. Um, and then Charles, there's a game that we play on the show. You have to pick a number between one and four inclusive and let me know what it is. Uh, now. Yes. Three. <laughs> Three. <laughs> Otherwise it's going to be a long show. <laughs> okay. And then you just got to answer this question. Okay. Would you rather have to walk around with six large balloons tied to your wrist for a year or with loud bells on your ankles for a year? Ankles bells. Yeah. I'm just wondering, do the balloons deflate? Because that would be really annoying. Yeah, I'm thinking bells. On yeah, because it would be really hard. I use my hands a lot, and I I play yeah. I play an instrument. I type. Yeah. No, no balloons. Yeah, with the with the bells. Like if somebody asks you, be like, "Where's your Christmas spirit?" <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'd be like, "What bells? <laughs> what are you talking about?" That would be really annoying, though. I don't know. Yeah. Agreed. Okay, Carl, both of them would be really annoying. <laughs> I'll, yeah. I'll take number two. Number two. Okay. Um, would you rather see everything upside down or hear everything backwards? <laughs> You know, I know that they've done studies like with glasses that flip things around and people pick that up pretty quick. So I think I would go with that one. But it says, would you rather see every, so I'm wondering like, is this so devious that what ended would end up happening when your brain finally does flip it? Would, would it flip again? (laughs) So every time you start to get used to it, it just flips over the whole world again. (laughs) But I, I will, uh, I will accept that. Yeah. I don't know how you, I mean, hearing everything backwards, you know, there's some people and I, they only know this because I knew somebody like this. Like they can, um, some people can do it with words. Some people can do it with sentences where you, you say it to them and they can immediately, like, it's like it's built into the brain. It's like a brain feature that they have. They can say it backwards. Have you ever met one of these people? No, but I've heard of that too. And it, that's you just can be weird. like Nostradamus and they'll like say it back like immediately. Like they're not even, they're not thinking about it. It's just their brain is capable of reversing it. And then I have to sit there for like five minutes, like. Yeah, that's right. You know, they can flip in their hands. Some people can do it with sentences. So if you're one of those people, I guess you could pick the other option. But for anybody else, that would be, I mean, you'd have to relearn everything. Mm-hmm. So anyway, okay. Uh, Charles, where can people find you? Where can they find me? Yeah, um, like on Twitter. Yeah, so Twitter, my handle is at uh, Carmine007. Okay. Um, and um facebook well i don't really facebook is yeah facebook. <laughs> um fine. yeah we'll, we'll include we have a whole bunch of links that we're going to put in the show go to channel nine see. man and just yeah. watch some of my old videos yeah yeah we saw you had like 121 pages of yeah a lot videos <laughs> that you're tagged yeah. on that's awesome uh, that is awesome yeah that was really? a good uh, you know i missed those days but i think doing that for 10 years uh, you know I, I look at it as i retired from channel nine yeah. I retired and now I'm back in development. Yeah. Um, and now I'm back on channel nine talking about what I'm working on and what, <laughs> but, but the tables have turned. Yeah. And it's nice because it's, it's, uh, um, it's a cool, you know, thanks for having me on the show. Yeah. It's, it's, it's cool stuff. Yep. Uh, Carl, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. 
You can find me at whytechie.com or on Twitter at twitter.com slash whytechie. So Charles, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about chaos engineering. Such sure. a cool topic. Thank you. Thank you.